You're listening to episode 164 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 17th of September 2021 here in Norwich as this episode goes out. How are you doing, Steph? I'm not too bad. Thank you. Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very good. I've been reading your zine. Have you? I have. How very exciting. I delivered a workshop to some young people last night on my zine. Did you? Oh, what a coincidence. Yeah, so listeners of the podcast probably aren't aware of your your little your little zine outsider. My little zine venture, yes. I've oh. I've published the first volume of a series of zines called Outsider, which are based on uh, their their perspectives and sort of reactions to the work of Stephen King by writers of marginalised genders. So that's women, non-binary folks and trans men. And yes, volume one came out a few months ago. So thank you very much for reading it. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. It's uh, I, I have a terrible secret, which is that I have not read any Stephen King. So I'm hoping this will be kind of my gateway into reading his stuff. This might entice you in. Yes, exactly, exactly. But yeah, we should probably talk about zine production more on the podcast, perhaps in a future episode. I think we should actually. Zine making is great fun. As I said, I did a session with some young people yesterday who are on our Lit From The Inside program with NCW. And we were talking all about how to make zines and how you can basically make them anywhere, anytime, do whatever you want with them. They can be as kind of lo-fi or as high production as you like. So yeah, they're actually a really interesting, exciting medium. So let's definitely have a chat about that in future. Absolutely. So on the show today, we are very fortunate to have Megan Abbott, who delivered the Noirage lecture over the weekend. Uh, We just had our crime writing festival last weekend, which went very well, had lots of people showing up both to in-person workshops and Zoom workshops and various panels and events over on our YouTube channel. Yes. And Megan Abbott was our big headliner of the weekend. And Megan was joining us from the US online. She is an award-winning author of nine crime novels, including The Turnout, which has just been published, and the best-selling You Will Know Me and Dare Me. She's written for numerous publications, and she is also a writer for TV. So Netflix recently adapted her novel Dare Me, which I watched actually and very much enjoyed. And she's also recently worked with David Simon. Amazing. Who worked on The Wire, yes, for HBO as well. Yeah, and if you enjoy listening to Megan's lecture on the podcast today, do make sure you head over to the noirage.co.uk website where you'll find the extended version of this where Megan is in conversation with Henry Sutton. We've also got our other author events from the festival up on our YouTube channel, so you can catch up on those at any time. That includes events with David Peace, Steph Char, Catriona Ward, and many others. The wonders of hybrid online festivals. Okay, so we're going to hand over to Henry Sutton, who is the co-director of the Noirage Crime Writing Festival, as well as a crime writer and also a lecturer up at the University of East Anglia. And Henry will introduce Megan before we dive straight into her lecture. So enjoy. My name is Henry Sutton, and I'm Professor of Creative Writing and Crime Fiction at UEA. I'm also the co-director of Noirage. Noirage is a partnership between the University of East Anglia and the National Centre for Writing. Very special thanks go to our festival sponsor, The Crime Vault, our booksellers Gerald and Arts Council England for making this event possible. I'm delighted to introduce Megan Abbott and indeed welcome her back to Noirage. Described as the 21st century answer to Patricia Highsmith, 
and winner of numerous awards, including an Edgar, Megan featured in person at the very first Noirage in 2014. It's fantastic to have you with us virtually and to deliver this year's lecture on the theme of true crime in the age of the docu-series. Megan has been pretty busy since she last appeared at Noirage, having produced three novels since then and worked on the Netflix adaptation of her novel Dare Me, three other adaptations of her novels, as well as working as a staff writer on the HBO series The Juice, devised by David Simon. Megan is in fact the author of 10 highly acclaimed novels and the groundbreaking critical work The Street Was Mine, White Masculinity in Hard-Boiled Fiction and Film Noir, which stemmed from her PhD at New York University. Megan's most recent novel, The Turnout, has just been published and is already a New York Times bestseller. I'll now hand over to Megan Abbott for the 2021 Noirage Lecture. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I only wish it were in person. Um, so I'm just going to jump in. Um, this was a, a really interesting talk to think about writing, and I'm really happy I had the chance to. Um, last summer, during the heady, galvanizing peak of the Black Lives Matter protests in response to the horrifying series of deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police officers, a flurry of think pieces appeared, and Bookworld social media was briefly abuzz with the question of, is this the end of crime fiction? The headlines were often very clickbaity. Crime fiction is complicit in police violence, asserted one. The end of the fictional cop, vowed another. One New York Times op-ed piece by a novelist proclaimed how white crime writers justified police brutality. Initially, I find myself bristling at the hot takes thrown out there, as if crime fiction were both a monolith and completely in the pocket of the police industrial complex. True, I said to myself, there is the tricky business of the collaboration between many crime writers and cops. Novelists and screenwriters frequently call upon police to serve as consultants, to permit them to do ride-alongs, to provide critical details, all of which can tilt the story in a particular direction, whether intentionally or not. But implicit or explicit in many of these pieces is the view that crime fiction is inherently reactionary, full of noble cop and detective heroes and the restoration of order by story's end, a sweeping assertion that requires erasing much of the genre. When I first read these critiques, I said to myself defensively, this is only true of police procedurals, one admittedly very popular subgenre. There will always be a band of order is restored and that order is inherently just crime novels. And two stories in which one good cop or detective can make a difference in a corrupt system. But these are authorial choices, not the form's demand, or so I told myself. Viewed in total, crime fiction is a much messier genre, one that spans the whodunits of Christie to the wildly Baroque and subversive Gravedigger Jones and Coffin Ed series of the great Chester Hines. American noir, after all, is based almost wholly under the notion that justice systems are flawed or corrupt, police are frequently on the take or sometimes even killers themselves, and even the detective hero becomes part of the nastiness, in Chandler's famous phrase, by the novel's end. And yet noir is full of its own problems, frequently glamorizing a poisonous masculinity, 
And classic noir, with its one man alone against the fallen world ethos, has been responsible for the othering of virtually anyone who isn't the white male protagonist. But the conversation was important, is important, and is far from over. The events of the last year and a half have certainly meant most crime novelists and TV writers have had to look at the stories we're telling and have told, the choices we've made thoughtlessly, the structures we may have implicitly endorsed. We've had to consider far more deeply our own responsibility, culpability, and complicity in perpetuating troubling or damaging cultural narratives. As someone with one foot in one world and one in the other, it's been interesting to see the way this reckoning has played out in the world of TV, particularly the increasingly popular genre of true crime docuseries, by which I mean not dramatic miniseries based on a true crime, but actual documentaries in which the filmmaker examines an actual crime and details and actions of real people. And I'd like to look at that genre more closely today because it is so wildly popular and has the potential to bring about changes large and small. There is a long history of important, thoughtful, expansive true crime documentaries before, going back to Errol Morris's groundbreaking The Thin Blue Line from 1988, and in 1996, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinopke's Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, the first in an eventual trilogy. Both have become classics in the miscarriage of justice vein. They were followed soon by Andrew Jarecki's Capturing the Freedmans in 2003, and John Xavier Lestrade's The Staircase in 2004, further milestones in the genre. But at that time, documentary features were, for the most part, a fairly rarefied genre, seen primarily in art houses, on public television, on the festival circuit. This was also an era when true crime on TV was dominated by popular reality shows such as Dateline, Cold Case Files, Forensic Files, shows I've consumed eagerly even as I came to recognize the limits of their model, constrained by advertising, screen time, mass market conventions of the day, and in many ways reflecting an inherent conservatism in their view of guilt and punishment, the sanctity of our institutions, these stories have a form, a set of tropes, dead girls and foxy serial killers, beautiful white women and their abusive spouses, men and women with no record of violence who inexplicably snap and kill their partners, their children, noble cops who can't let a case, cold case go, stories less of psychology and context than of dread and titillation, stories that begin with the victim's body and move forward in time, never backward. Stories that are told in ways that reify old tropes, hoary folk tales, little red riding hoods swallowed by the wolf every time. And their very ripped from the headlines nature often means they bear all the prejudice of their era, expressing fears of a need to contain independent women, people of color, queer people, immigrants, sex workers, and onward. And that the experts, the talking heads, the tellers of the tale are most frequently police detectives, prosecutors, FBI profilers. But in large part, thanks to the true crime documentary renaissance launched by Morris and others, we now have a far richer array of stories that present far more complicated views of crime and justice. And we're seeing a pulling away from reality shows that may glorify police or at least only present the police POV, regardless of context or history or sometimes even the facts. 
In June 2020, Cops, the most successful police reality show of all time, was canceled after more than 30 years, though it may in fact be returning, though only for non-U.S. audiences. One day later after that announcement, the same studio, Paramount, also canceled Live PD, its highly rated reality show that filmed police patrols in smaller American towns. In the same month, a moment when Black Lives Matters protests were galvanizing across the U.S., the Writers Guild East, which represents screenwriters, including myself, called on the AFL-CIO union to disaffiliate with the International Union of Police Association. It hasn't happened yet, but the often cozy relationship between writers and their cop sources and their police consultants have come under a microscope in powerful ways. But what's been even more exciting than what's gone away is what's newly arrived when it comes to true crime docuseries. The rise of streaming, the monumental success of a few influential series and podcasts, and the seemingly insatiable audience demand has meant a glut of these series. And what's been so exciting in the last few years is the deluge of victim and survivor-centered stories that explore the complex socioeconomic climate that often help foment crime, perpetuate violence, or at the very least made very problematic a simple view of justice or justice systems. And these series are coming at a time when the audience for true crime is never has never been greater. A, tw a 2021 analysis of streaming trends by Parrot Analytics found that between January 2008, over two years before the pandemic, and March 2021, the number of documentary series rose by 63% and demand for them skyrocketed by 142%. Among those, true crime was both the biggest subgenre by far, but also one of the fastest growing. Why the rise? There are many factors. The pandemic, yes, though the spike began well before that. The dramatic rise of true crime podcasts and the high browing of them thanks to the success of Serial. The runaway success of the dense and sprawling docu-series Making a Murderer, which surprised even Netflix with its counter-programming during the holiday season of 2015, and which led to dozens more following its model. The rise of online amateur true crime sleuthing, leading in some cases to the solving of a cold case. And I think the powerful effect of a, of a few high-profile, critically lauded, and commercially successful true crime books, foremost journalist Robert Kolker's Lost Girls, which came out in 2013. It drew comparisons to Capote's groundbreaking In Cold Blood, but it had a very different approach to reportage. Punitively, the book is about the Long Island serial killer case. But what Kolker really does is to reconstruct with immense intricacy and empathy the lives of five women working as escorts when they were murdered, their childhood, their families, the set of oppressive socioeconomic circumstances and institutional failures that made them vulnerable to both the predator and the investigation and the media coverage of the case. The prestige with which it was published both influenced and made possible many similarly oriented books to follow, but also reflected a sea change in the way the publishing industry views true crime. There have been many true crime books as rich as this one, but they weren't all published this way. Down market no more, these stories could be told in deep, nuanced ways, and readers would respond in kind. It was a bestseller. 
Sure, there are plenty of salacious true crime docu-series, or shallow ones, or merely deliciously seedy ones, like the early pandemic phenomenon that was Tiger King, which may or may not have taken advantage of some of its subjects and unfairly glorified others, among its other potential ethical or storytelling violations. But for the most part, I think we're in a golden age of true crime, and it's not just the volume. The range of stories has expanded, as has their complexity and nuance. The storytellers are more diverse, and their work reflects the way they see the world, crime, gender, race, power. And it's a worldview we have sorely needed represented on TV. And it's also a matter of whose story they're telling and whom they're relying on to tell it and whose experience or even point of view is given center stage. In the past, the focus might be on the killer, the predator, the police telling us how they crack the case. But now, far more often, the focus is on, for lack of more nuanced terms, victims, their families, the survivors and theirs. Police are featured not as final authorities, but as human beings, good and bad, and mostly in between. And these series frequently explore police failures, individual and institutional blind spots, historically specific prejudices, and the very human mistakes that can sometimes have unintentionally tragic consequences. In short, many of these docu-series, even many of the most popular, are presenting rich, thoroughly reported stories that not only go beyond whodunits, but do at their best what we might consider important social justice work, and even at their simplest, reflect and inform a growing distrust of the legal and justice system in recent years, driven by these police killings, DNA facilitated exonerations, and the series of cases championed by the increasingly high-profile Innocence Project in the U.S. All this is good news to me, even as I've seen the headlines bemoaning true crime's popularity as rubbernecking, exploitation, desensitizing all of us. I'm familiar with all these arguments against true crime because I've always loved it since I was a kid at the drugstore reaching for the mass market paperback on the spin rack, Helter Skelter, Fatal Vision, both very problematic books. Um, it's now become a truism that women are the greatest consumers of true crime and countless think pieces have tried to answer the question as to why. I know because I've written a few, um, but is it really a surprise? And in fact, is that part of why the genre is so consistently diminished, dismissed. After all, there has long been a strong narrative that mocks the female consumership of true crime, like soap operas or romance novels or melodrama, cultural objects consumed by women. Uh, there's a tendency to repeatedly view them as inherently trashy, silly, small, petty. It makes me think about the stories Hollywood tells and the ones they don't even the stories they consider stories. Most of the female TV writers I know have, like me, been told by executives, many well-meaning and all smart, that the stories we wanted to tell about women in crime simply weren't quote-unquote big enough. Not big enough. It's one of those Hollywood euphemisms that speaks volumes. In part, it's merely polite code for we're not that interested. But that, even of itself, is telling, because in my experience, big stories is also code for male straight, male straight white stories, stories about low-level gangsters, suburban drug dealers, Madison Avenue ad men, 
dragons, serial killers, all stories I love, by the way, but they're considered big. They're about America, but stories about teenage girls and women, about their ambitions and sorrows, about families and their secrets, about the hidden longing of women and the traumas they hide, about the impact of violence on a family, about middle-aged women, queer women, mothers with desires, fears, aggressions, jealousies, dreams, about women who would be sidelined. These are all women who would be sidelined in big shows, confined to the role of wife, girlfriend, stripper, victim, but here they're given center stage. Yet these are apparently small stories. They're about small things. In a piece for the LA Times uh, three years ago, I wrote that in the wake of the Me Too movement, I've come to think of true crime, not to mention crime fiction, as performing a vital role for women. They serve as a place women can go to explore the dark, messy stuff of their lives that they're not supposed to talk about. Domestic abuse, serial predation, sexual assault the price of addiction, conflicted feelings about motherhood, the weight of trauma, partner violence, and the myriad ways the justice system can fail, oppress, and silence women. True crime is where the concerns and challenges of women's life are taken deadly seriously, and fear or distrust is not dismissed as paranoia, but valued as rational and real. And order is not restored, because there never was any order. The system was rigged against you from the start. In fact, as we see in many of the greatest true crime books and docu-series in recent years, from Lost Girls to the recent murder at Middle Beach, the crimes remain unsolved. The justice system or that lone male cop or detective did not prevail. And that's precisely the point. These series reflect the world women live in, where justice or even institutional interest isn't expected. Emailing me about the brilliant docu-series All Be Gone in the Dark, a mutual crime enthusiast, male, noted, how can, a, how can a man could rape 50 plus women and kill 10 people and get away with it is basically a primer on institutionalized misogyny. And I think I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the six-part docu-series based on that 2019 book by Michelle McNamara, serves as a perfect case study for us now to look a little more closely at what I think is so potentially powerful about this moment in true crime. It tells the story of Michelle McNamara's attempts to identify the man she dubbed the Golden State Killer, a predator who terrorized women in California in the 70s and 80s, committing, as my friend said, 50 sexual assaults and 10 murders. In many ways, the series posed a challenge. It was a case that didn't satisfy any of the traditional features of a genre. There was no fascinating killer, no voyeuristic or lurid reenactments, no valorization of the dogged police detective. And while there was a powerful resolution, the killer was identified by familial DNA when the series was in production. But the resolution came only after the death of McNamara herself, who passed away suddenly before the book even was finished. And yet, or perhaps because of these elements, the story deeply resonated with women. Few TV shows in my experience have felt bigger in terms of exploring the vivid, crushing way fear is an elemental, relentless part of most women's lives. And the way trauma lives on in women and their families, their spouses, their children, vibrating through them decades later. Feelings universal among most women, and not just women, and yet never considered the story worth telling before. 
there have literally been three movies, a scripted series, and an extended docu-series about serial killer Ted Bundy in just the last two years, one just this month, and yet I've never seen this kind of story about female fear of male violence told with such rigor and understanding, ever. Informed by the way McNamara approached true crime in her writing, the emphasis in the series is decidedly on the victims, not their deaths, but their lives, their families, those who survived the attack and what it did to their lives and their families. And the series focused on McNamara herself, her life and her untimely death. Her obsession with true crime is part of the series itself and is treated with utmost seriousness and with a full understanding that McNamara is representative of millions of women who see themselves, their lives, and their struggles in the world of true crime. And it gives these women power. McNamara's important advocacy, raising the profile of the case, surely played a role in the arrest of the eventual caught killer, Joseph D'Angelo, even if the police did not even mention McNamara's name at the press conference, championing themselves for his capture. In fact, when asked, they denied that her reportage had played any part, despite the fact that they were using throughout that same press conference the very name she coined, the Golden State Killer, in order to draw attention to the case. What woman can identify with that kind of erasure? And is there anything more empowering than McNamara's words, voiced by actor Amy Ryan in the series, warning, even promising the then unidentified killer that his time is coming. It's running out. He will no longer be able to hide in the dark because, quote, this is how it ends for you. Open the door. Show us your face. Walk into the light. Revelatory. Important. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, both the book and the series, clearly played a critical role in catching the killer. But a docuseries doesn't have to result in dramatic off-screen outcomes to be meaningful. As Errol Morris said last year regarding the influence of his groundbreaking documentary, which resulted in the exoneration of an innocent man and the imprisonment of a guilty one, quote, I'm sorry for the thin blue line. You solve a murder mystery and then people think that's all documentaries should do. In most crime narratives, there are so many more mysteries beyond the whodunit, which is what Morris is alluding to, and they rarely have simple answers. Consider the recent series um, Murder on Middle Beach, which is on HBO in the U.S. and I believe Sky TV in the U.K. Um, Over four episodes, the filmmaker Madison Hamburg explores the story of his own family, a white, once wealthy brood in Tony, Connecticut, torn apart by the unsolved murder of his mother, Barbara, beaten and stabbed to death on her own front lawn. Rather than linger forever on the whodunit aspect, Hamburg chooses instead, as Cassie DaCosta writes in Vanity Fair, to look deeply into the matrix of interactions and institutions that make violence almost inevitable. We learn about the father's financial hubris and the contentious divorce that may or may not have led to her death. But far more fascinatingly, we learn about the secret lives and addictions of Barbara and her two sisters, the filmmakers Anne's, and the complicated dynamics between all three women, from the outside, middle-aged, invisible by our, our cultural standards, and yet on the inside, writhing with pain and aspirations and loneliness and rage. And the docu-series finishes with no answer to the question of who done it, but it goes a long way to exploring the way a family can fall apart, fail, and how it might come together again. 
to that point, considered The Ripper, the recent British four-part docuseries on the Yorkshire murders that was for me particularly revelatory, knowing very little about the relationship between media coverage of those murders and the women's movement. The way the documentary reframed the story we'd all heard before to focus on the victims, the communities, the problematic police investigation and problematic reportage, even as it fascinatingly brings its own biases to bear. There's a great deal of effort to assert that many of the victims were not as reported sex workers, an assertion that inadvertently has the effect of asserting that those who were sex workers were somehow less innocent. So it's, it's complicated even in and of itself. And I think this is sort of representative of how these docuseries are sort of rewriting themselves as they write. They're catching their own blind spots there. Um, and they're, you know, putting these series out into a large clamoring public that can then also make these corrections. Or consider the recent Netflix series Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich by filmmaker Lisa Bryant. Unlike the vast majority of splashy coverage of the case, the series is victim-centered and victim-forward, focusing in minute detail on the various experiences of the survivors of his predations and the impact of the abuse and the media ad avalanche that followed on their lives. It's also a horrifying story of the systemic and individual complicity that permitted Epstein to get away with his crimes for so long. Or another one, um, this one was on Netflix, American Murder, The Family Next Door, with its unique storytelling style. Its director, Jenny Popplewell, uses social media posts, law enforcement recordings, text messages, and home video footage to reconstruct the life and death of Shannon Watts and her two daughters at the hands of her controlling husband. It's chilling, vivid, real, a terrifyingly effective dissection of toxic masculinity, and we can almost feel it because of that storytelling style unfurling in real time. Popplewell insists we reject the notion that the husband just snapped, instead shows a growing, intensifying pattern of gaslighting and abuse. Like the title itself, American Murder, The Family Next Door, it could hardly feel more relevant, could hardly feel, to use that Hollywood term, bigger. And according to Netflix, it was watched by 52 million viewers around the world in its first month on the service. There's also a marvelous four-part series, The Lady in the Dale, directed by Zachary Drucker and Nick Camilleri. It's a seemingly about a career con artist and entrepreneur in 1970s America, but it ends up being an exploration of the trans experience in the 70s and a, and a very unexpected take about growing up with criminal parents. In lesser hands, it would have been sensationalized or worse, but instead it's a tale both of a career criminal in pursuit of the American dream and a trans pioneer, the same person. And the series embraces all its contradictions and finds meaning and synchronicity in them. Forced to be an outsider due to the pervasive bigotry of the day, she makes the most of her outsider life. It's a big story, an American story, and the series treats it as such. What can these stories do? All aren't going to re result in changes in the justice system. They're not going to shake up a police department or an administration or a federal law. 
but they can do so much else. They can illuminate the lives of those whom our systems of justice persistently fail. They can tap into important cultural anxieties, illuminating fractures, biases, not just in the system, but in the hearts of men and women. They can change the way we view history, and they can help make us more critical and more empathetic, more skeptical and more understanding. They can help us understand our own lives. As Oral Errol Morris has also said, however you want to describe it, the whodunit, the mystery of what really happened, the mystery of personality, of who people really, really are, is powerfully representative when you have a crime standing at the back of all of it. It's a way of dramatizing really significant issues. How we know what we know, how we come to the belief that we have, is just absurd by the various mechanisms in our society. Is the law just? And on and on and on. Can crime do social justice work? Can it change the way we look critically, not just at crime and justice, but the, not just the way the media reports or fails to report these crimes, but the way we approach them as citizens? The questions we ask, the biases and beliefs deeply instilled in us? I think it can. The possibilities have never felt bigger. I also think viewers now approach these docu-series with a more critical eye and that the rise of streaming in our online world has enabled many to become amateur detectives, researchers, and analysts in ways both tricky and potentially powerful. At the same time, we always need to be asking, are we telling enough of the stories that need to be told? There's still an overwhelming emphasis on crimes involving white female victims. And I wish that one of the sadly countless stories that focus on crimes committed against LGBT communities would get the prestige multi-episode treatment on a wide platform rather than being siloed to the documentary circuit or limited to public television's reach. Instead, we'll, we're still far more likely to see a sensationalized limited series focused on quote-unquote gay serial killers whose identity is, is often implicitly tied to their criminality. But we're getting there, doing better. These docu-series and their receptions offer the promise for so many more stories to be told, ones that we consider big, stories with deep and expansive takes on the drivers behind and the reverberations of crime, the conditions that can help perpetuate it, the prejudice and cultural nails that help formed and continue to hum through our systems of justice, and the fractures and failures and tragedies that result. And crime fiction must do the the same. I now know I'm trying to be more thoughtful, diligent, and purposeful in my work, to catch my own blind spots, to push myself into uncomfortable areas, to reckon with my own biases and failures. And we all must never stop arguing for the bigness of these stories, stories about resilience and loss, power and its abuses, trauma and injustice, love and courage. There's nothing bigger than that. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Megan for delivering that amazing lecture. And don't forget to head over to noirage.co.uk to find all the other events that happened over the weekend. You can go and catch up on all of them thanks to the magic of YouTube. If you have any questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to our weekly newsletter and find out about all of our programmes and events at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we do rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation, which you can do by heading to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the Support Us tab. 
And another way you can show support for the National Centre for Writing is to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Yeah, with a good review. With a good review, a five-star review. You can also join our Discord community, which you can find a link to down in the show notes. This is a, a lovely place full of writers talking about their work, sharing techniques and writing together. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. 